Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Uh, this morning, we're in uh, week six of our Lead Like Jesus series. And uh, next week, we're going to wrap up this series talking about hope and kind of the climax of this Psalm uh, 23. Well, we've been in Psalm 23, and we've been going verse by verse, kind of looking at each key theme. And we've been looking at it through the lens of David's life, and most importantly, Jesus' life. And a lot of times we read these verses in Psalm 23 at the end of life, at funerals and places like that. But I hope that you have seen by now how these verses hold great wisdom for us right now and how we live our lives today and how we walk with God uh, and live godly lives right now. Uh, last week, Eric unpacked Psalm 23.4, and he shared about how God disciplines and comforts us with his rod and his staff. If you missed last week's message, you know, I encourage you to go online and just take a, a listen, because a lot of times we imagine that God is passive and that he's sitting back. But the reality is Psalm 23 paints a picture of a God that's actively engaged in every aspect of our life, a God who's working through circumstances, even painful things, even frightening things. He's working for our good, and he's bringing us to true hope. Well, this morning we're looking at verse 5, and David says to our Lord, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup Overflows. Can we bring up the house lights a little bit? I know some people are, are reading uh, in their scriptures. But just uh, let the words of that verse kind of ruminate for a moment. There is perhaps no greater metaphor in scripture for relationships than a table. So here you see the word table, and I want you to really key into that word for a moment. Whenever you visit a coffee shop, for example, and a lot of times I like to write my messages at the coffee shop, You'd be hard-pressed to find a table that doesn't have at least two chairs at it, or even a dozen chairs, 10 or 12 chairs. Tables aren't just a place for laptops or cups or plates or food and eating, though that's what we often think about when it comes to a table. A table really is a place of relationships. It's a place of fellowship. And sometimes that's an obvious thing to state, but it's important to think about especially in the context of this verse. I want you to think for a moment about the different people with whom you share a table every week. All right, so just kind of jog through your mind for a moment. All the different tables that you might find yourself at. Uh, you surely have a table, for example, in your home. Uh, if you're widowed or divorced or separated, my mom's widowed, uh, Sometimes it's really hard to sit at that table at your home. You sit there every night with vivid memories of a person that sat across from you. And maybe those are fond memories, but maybe they're painful memories and hurtful memories. Maybe, the, you know, or perhaps you sit in your home with your husband or wife at that table, your children or other family members. You know, think of it this way, that that table in its own way can be a sign of vitality and health. If everybody in your home, your marriage, your family, your kids, if everyone gathers at that table, that's often a sign of healthy relationships, that everybody is engaged, that everybody's willing to sit there. 
But when people don't gather at that table, sometimes that is an indicator that there's trouble on the horizon or that trouble has already taken root, that there's something that's disrupted the relationships often. Sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's competing priorities, sometimes it's more painful things. But that table is not insignificant that's in your home. And you shouldn't ignore the dynamics of your table. Now let's talk about the home for a moment. If you're married, you chose your spouse. We don't have a lot of arranged marriages uh, taking place these days. But at some point, you chose your spouse. You chose the person to sit at that table. But maybe your spouse, maybe things have changed. Maybe your spouse isn't who you thought they were. Maybe your marriage isn't what you thought it would become. Maybe both of you have changed quite a bit. You come to a table in your home and sometimes it's not as romantic and easy or enjoyable or what you thought it was going to be. And yes, you chose to have children. You know, sometimes a child's unexpected, sometimes it's ill-timed, sadly. Uh, sometimes a child's unwanted, which, uh, you know, we saw the James Project and the ministry they're doing, and, and when a child's unexpected or ill-timed or unwanted, that child still has a right to life, and it's great how there's ministries that come alongside children to give them that opportunity and hope in life. But I pray that you love every single child, and I pray that if uh, you feel moved this morning by the video at the beginning of the service, that you'll reach out to the James Project folks in the lobby and maybe get involved. But I'm talking about your home for a moment, and maybe your children aren't exactly the children you dreamed about. Maybe they're not the children you really wanted to have. Maybe there's personality issues or difficulties, or challenges. It's not everything that you imagined. Maybe it's true that your children are a heap of frustration. For every parent that says, I love my kids, and I love being with them, and I, I can't imagine not being with them, I'm living the dream. For every parent that says that, it seems like there are those who also lament, I don't think I'm cut out for this parenting thing. It's going horrible. It's a nightmare. And people use those kinds of phrases. Somebody uh, made the observation that, you know, whereas you get to pick your friends, you don't get to pick your family. And even when you do get to pick, like, your spouse or choose to have children, they don't always become what you think. And so you get to pick your friends, but you don't always get to pick your family. And so the home is one place where a table gets set for us. You know, we think of setting a table. But that home table, the, the spouse, the family, especially when you go wider in the circle of family, that table gets set for us relationally speaking. Think about that. Uh, you sit at various other tables throughout the year, probably, with extended family members. You sit at a table maybe with your in-laws, for instance. You know, every week uh, I sit at a table with my in-laws. Uh, we have one meal a week at least. And uh, Laura's mom's there, and I always say, hello, mother-in-law, in my best uh, Seinfeld Newman uh, tone of voice. 
And she says in her best Simon, uh, Seinfeld Newman voice, she goes, hello, son-in-law. We kind of have some fun that way. But sometimes those extended relationships, you find yourself at a table with people that you dread. And you dread getting together at the holidays. You dread those special days, those birthdays, those anniversaries, those things that feel so obligatory. And you're like doing everything you can to pull yourself up to a table that you just assume had a good excuse to avoid, right? If you're a student, you sit at many tables at school. And some of those tables have great diversity to them. Diversity of viewpoints, all sorts of differences. At work, you sit at a table, maybe for meetings, for planning, for collaboration, for creating a work product. You sit at tables at work with people during lunchtime or break time. Even at a coffee shop, you might go there and intend to sit alone, but inevitably, somebody will sit near you. And if you make eye contact, conversations begin to flow. But all these different tables, okay, we don't often set our own tables. We don't relationally set our own tables, not all the time. Our tables are often relationally prepared for us. And as much as we want to, we don't get to pick and choose who is at our table. Now, we can avoid a certain table altogether, but that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to think about the very challenging and the very difficult relationships in which you must regularly sit for whatever reason. The the tables that you can't avoid, not always, not often, maybe occasionally you can avoid them, but the people that you have to face at a table. We take this idea that David mentions of God preparing a table for us And I started thinking, you know, we've looked at all this stuff through David's life, but I've been looking at this psalm through Christ's life, and Jesus' kind of outreach, okay, was advanced around, often, tables. Jesus sat at tables with sinners and tax collectors. He sat and ate and drank with religiously and culturally deplorable people. I put that in parentheses because that's how man sizes up somebody, not God. And not just Jesus' kind of outreach, but Jesus' kind of discipleship was built around tables, if you think about it. You know, it's true that Jesus, in the beginning, chose the 12. In fact, the Gospels are pretty clear that Jesus not only chose the 12 out of the masses, I mean, he could have chose anybody, The Gospels in the Greek, it's got a very specific word. It talks about that Jesus called people that he desired and that he liked. It wasn't just the utility of the 12 that they were chosen. It was their personalities. There was something resonant about them that Jesus enjoyed and desired and liked. And on countless occasions, Jesus would gather with the 12 around a table for a common meal. One of the most famous pictures of Jesus uh, that's ever been painted is of Jesus at the reclined at the, the table with the 12. And you see all the, the personalities there. We don't often practice hospitality with people that we can't stand, not long for long anyhow. But, you know, Jesus loved Peter and James and John and Andrew and, and all the others. He loved these men. 
And if you read the Gospels, even though Jesus chose and desired and loved the 12, what are we told? We're told that one of them was the devil, right? And inevitably, no matter when you pick and choose, you chose your spouse, you chose to have children, you, you know, Jesus chose the 12. Even when we are the ones that are setting our own table relationally, so to speak, inevitably, there's always that one. And Jesus says, one of them was the devil. In John 6, 70, verses 70 through 71, Jesus replies, he's talking to the 12, he says, didn't I choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is the devil. And he's referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. Talk about a painful verse. Talk about a painful moment, a painful conversation to sit at a table with people that you love while knowing that there's an insincerity, that there's a betrayal right there in your midst. And not everybody that's smiling at you is smiling with you kind of a thing. How many times do you find yourself at a table sitting with an enemy? Now, I know, I know, what, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking enemy is too strong a word. And maybe it is. We don't use the word enemy that much anymore. Uh, if, you, if you think of it, we don't use it much today. Uh, to call someone an enemy seems kind of childish, demeaning, dehumanizing, narrow-minded, maybe racist, maybe bigoted. That word is kind of getting erased. <clears throat> if you see someone as an enemy these days, you keep it to yourself. Because you want people to see you as tolerant and kind and moral and good and you don't have those kind of toxic emotions of, of frustration and hatred and injustice. And so we kind of bury this idea of enemy. Uh, you certainly don't refer to people as the devil, not typically. Uh, maybe you prefer softer terms than enemy. Maybe you think of a person as an adversary, as a rival as just different or special or other or a pain in the neck or a pain in something else, you know, or whatever uh, designation you want to use. What if it's not coincidental? What if it's not coincidental? What if it's providential that you find yourself sitting at the table where you sit? What if it's not coincidental what if it's in fact providential that you find yourself sitting at the table where you sit? What if of all the people God could have put in your seat, he chose to put you there to fulfill his unique purpose and plan? You wish that somebody else, that God would have assigned that seat to someone else, but it's your seat and it's your assignment. And what if God put you there? Yes, in these relationships that are mixed and and a blessing, but sometimes feel like a curse, and, and, and you're all over, like, but what if you're there? Because the Lord has relationally set a table and a place for you and given you a purpose and an assignment to be there at that moment. David says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now, it doesn't say you prepare a table for me in the absence of my enemies. They're not outside the door. They're not out in the street. They're not down the road. 
They're in your presence. And I think of Jesus with his 12, and here's the 11, but one of them is the devil. And it's like there's this delicious meal that's been prepared in the presence even of my enemies. But, ah, Lord, you know, I know what you're thinking. Lord, I want to run. I want to avoid this table. I'd rather go hungry than sit in my assigned seat. I'd rather hide under the table. I'd rather do much, a lot of other things than sit across or near my enemy, Lord. I don't want to face these people at all. Lord, I'd rather you deal me a whole different relational deck of cards. I, I like the hand that someone else is holding over here. You know, why couldn't you have given me their hand, their deck of relationships? Well, you know what the problem is with asking God to give you a different deck of cards, a different deck of relationships. You probably already know. No matter what deck of cards you get, there are always jokers and clowns in every deck of cards. So you can run and, and you can move far away. You can go to another state. You can uproot yourself. You can try to hit relational reset on your family, on your marriage. People are always continually thinking the answer is, is that I'm going to keep jumping from relationship circle to relationship circle and from place to place and, and even church to church and, and that I'm going to find that perfect circle, that perfect table to which I can sit and fellowship. I was always told if you uh, find such a place, don't go there because you'll mess it up, you know. But you know, tell me it's not true in your life that when you've tried to avoid a table, you find yourself soon sitting at another table that has much of the same dynamics as the one that you vacated. You ever find that to be true? You leave a relationship, you start another relationship. Well, then that relationship has the same dynamics and then the next one and the next one. Jesus, he didn't just build his idea of outreach. He didn't just build his idea of discipleship around a table. I got to thinking this week that he really built his idea of church around a table. Uh, The early church did not forsake the assembly, but they joined together. And we usually think of a big building, a big room, a big place, you know, like we're seated in rows. But the early church often gathered in houses and homes around tables and in tight spaces. They joined together around tables and they broke bread and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And in the church, you might think, wow, that sounds so nice. But in the church, you had men and women and men and women have uh, been antagonistic to each other from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. But you had Jews and you had Gentiles in these small places around a common table. You had people that were slaves. And no matter how you look at that idea of a person being a slave, whatever the circumstances were, if they were different or the same as what we think of when we think of slavery, you had slaves, but you also had free men. You had people that were oppressed and controlled and directed. And, but then you had the oppressor. You had the the weak and the strong together at a table. You had people that were abused, and you had the abusers, and abused trying to find courage and faith to forgive, and abusers trying to be forgiven. 
sitting at the same victims and victimizers sitting at the same table. Can you imagine? You had ideological ideological enemies. The the twelve that Jesus gathered were not uh, ideologically similar. They were as different of people with as different. There was zealots. There was fishermen. There, I mean, they were all over the place. But around a table in the early church, you had ideological enemies, political rivals. You had moral bullies and the morally broken. And uh, you, you might romanticize this idea of the early church gathering around a common table, but it's not the table that you imagine it to be. It was a table that required a lot of work. It's a table that required a work of love, a work of reconciliation. And uh, it, it was a, a very charged environment maybe sometimes. You read Corinthians you read some of these books of the Bible with all the divisions and all the fleshliness and carnality that would come out when you get people together, right? Under any circumstance. What about the table around which we are to gather as God's people? The Lord's table. Again, I would characterize, uh, I wouldn't characterize anyone here as an enemy, but I don't need to tell you that even in the church today that people are sharply as divided as they've ever been. And within the church, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who see one another as the devil, you know, as a matter of speaking. Uh, In the church, a married couple sit at the Lord's table but can't stand to look at each other. There's bitterness and hurt and anger. They come to church together but there's a lot of healing and work that has to happen in the marriage. A family comes together in the church at the Lord's table, but the heart of the father is turned against the child, and the child is estranged from his or her parents. The family is coming to a table, but there's a lot of work that has to be done in the family. Two people that have done business together uh, out in the world come together into a common sanctuary at the Lord's table. And one feels maybe cheated and maybe another feels angry and maybe another feels proud or whatever. And they're together sitting at a common table. At this table sit people, it's not just the outward sins, it's also the inner stuff. At the table in the church sit two people who have sinned in their heart against others. And one may harbor great anger or one might harbor covetousness and a, a sense of jealousy about their idea of, of, of somebody else's life. And they, I wish I had that life. And, 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 you know, you can sit in a place at a table and, and covetousness and anger and envy. There's all this inner junk that starts to kind of like get into the head, right? Evil comparisons, jealousies, all these things. There is also the problem of lust, that adultery of the heart that corrodes and sabotages relationships. When you get people together, there's lust, there's covetousness, anger, envy, all these things. There's also the verbal sins. When things build up so much in our heart, they spill over into gossip and and slander and, and malice and evil speaking and coarse joking and all this stuff. But we're, here we are, we're at a table and there's things going on inwardly, and there's things going on interpersonally and relationally in the church, outside the church, beyond the church. 
It's not like we're coming to this table as a tabula rasa. You know, we're not coming as blank slates. We're coming with a lot of baggage. And, and we're juiced up, so to speak. At this table in the church sit lefties and righties, liberals, progressives, conservatives, people who are red, yellow, black, and white as the old song goes. It's probably not even politically correct to sing some of those songs that we used to sing in Sunday school. But here sit the rich and the poor, the proud and the broken. The Lord's table is a table that's not very comfortable to sit at. If you really think about it, if you meditate or reflect on it long, the Lord's table is a table that we squirm at much like we squirm at a lot of other tables and we're uncomfortable. And you might ask yourself, what genius set this relationally messy table of the church or of any other place? What good could possibly come Staying engaged at this table of outreach, at this table of discipleship, this, this table of the kingdom of God, this table of the Lord's Supper. And the answer is, God was the genius. It was God's idea. The only possible way to remain seated at a table is to ask God to also join you at that table. You can't come to that table alone. You have to invite God's presence with you at that table if you're going to be there very long. Your table at home, your table at work, your table at school, your table in the world, even the Lord's table. The Lord must be with us in order for us to have the courage to do what has to happen at that table. Now, there is a courage needed to trust God's purpose at the table at which you sit, not just in the church, but also outside the church. There is a courage that's needed to trust God's purpose. And maybe that's where you're at this morning is your prayer is, God, help me to trust your purpose because it doesn't seem like there's any purpose. <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's any fruit, any return on investment. There's so much cost sitting at this table. It takes courage to trust God's purpose, even when we cannot see the larger picture of God's purpose and plan. I don't have any special seeing eyeglass, and neither do you. Uh, Jesus didn't like the cup that was being handed to him. In fact, he prayed that the cup being handed him would pass. But in the end, he drank the cup that God was serving him because, not that he wanted to, but because he trusted God's purpose and plan in taking that cup. In the end, though Judas was the devil, Jesus called him friend and kissed him. Even as Judas was hatching a plot to betray Jesus, even as Jesus' captors were congregating and making their way to the garden, uh, at the table, Jesus was entrusting himself to the Father's purpose and plan. And all I'm saying is, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith. And it's a very hard teaching to tell somebody that's experiencing pain and danger maybe even perhaps to stay engaged at a table. It takes courage and faith. God definitely has to be part of that equation, you would agree. What is God's purpose 
in you staying engaged in your marriage and staying at the table in which you find yourself? What is God's purpose in your children's lives that he would have you stay engaged with your children rather than to forsake your covenant with your family and your, and your children? What is God's purpose in your extended family that he sends you off to this deranged, dysfunctional group of people and, and for Christmas or Thanksgiving, I'm being funny, but, but you know, what is his purpose there for you? What is his purpose in your workplace? You've got a job, you pay the bills, but it's not the people that you really want to spend time with. You do it, it's your duty, you're moving forward, you're, you know, like, but man, what is his purpose for you in that workplace? Is it derogatory and negative or is it positive and redemptive? School, school can be a really hard place, relationally. I mean, if you're the cool kid, maybe not, but if you're the, the you know, the one being bullied, the one being harassed, the one that's not measuring up. What, what good are these relationships? And in the church, I'm looking for another church. Uh, you know, my church just doesn't meet my needs and I, I don't like the people there and no one's friendly. And I, What is God's purpose for you in your church? If you're running from that table you may, in fact, be running from God's very purpose and plan. If God set that table and you're running from it, you may be very well running from his purpose and plan in any number of these places that we've described. You may be running from the work that God prepared for you since the beginning of eternity. And, and what if you were to learn like David to sit in the presence of your enemies, trusting not your instincts, listening not to your fears, but trusting God. It would take a lot of courage to do it. I think God wants to give us that courage, don't you? He wants us to sit and stay engaged at that table of relationships that he set for us so that his purpose of reconciliation might move forward. And that's a different message than what the world tells us. The world says, run and avoid and escape. And God says, trust me, <laughs> have courage. David, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now, not only does it take courage to trust God's purpose, I think it takes patience to trust God's provision. God doesn't ask you to do something that he doesn't give you a provision or a way of doing, a means of doing what he asks of you. And that's what the last half of this verse is about. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, but then God, he anoints my head with oil, and my cup overflows. You know the word anointing, the idea of anointing in scripture? Anointing with oil is always equated with healing or a commissioning. Why in the world is God making me sit at this table of all tables? And the answer is to bring anointing, to bring healing into your life and into your relationships and into other people's lives and their relationships. His purpose is to bring healing. It's to decimate the dividing walls of our infinite hostilities. You see, in the flesh, by nature, we develop hostilities. Hostilities multiply. Sin multiplies. That's our default. 
And God's trying to change by his Holy Spirit in our innermost being, our default, where, where there's a, a healing that takes place when we sit with our enemies. David says, God, you anoint my head with healing oil, right? Maybe the first place that God needs to touch in terms of his healing is our head. You anoint my head. Maybe we need to be renewed in the attitude of our mind toward our spouse and our kids and our families and our coworkers and our extended families and our enemies. Like maybe we need to be renewed in the attitude of our mind. You know, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. You know, God, show me, teach me what you have in store at this table. Anoint my head space. No, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Anoint my head with oil. Maybe that's a way that we can apply this verse. David also says, though, not only do I experience God's anointed healing at this table, but my cup overflows. Not only does God give me grace to be forgiven of my sin, think about this. He doesn't just give you grace to be forgiven, but he gives you abundantly exceeding great grace, overflowing grace, so that there's enough there not just to forgive you, but for you to forgive your enemies as well. At the table, love covers over a multitude of sin. By all worldly accounts, my cup should be empty. I should be depleted. I should be exhausted. I should be thirsty. I should be impoverished at this table. But instead, I have this cup and it's overflowing because God's grace is overflowing and God's mightily at work. And he is supplying whatever deficit that I would otherwise have. He is allowing and enabling me to stay at this place, at this table, even in the presence of my enemies with an abundant, overflowing Goodness and grace, and it's his. He makes me able, and he strengthens me. So when you look at yourself, I don't have the courage, I don't have the patience, I don't have the inner resources, and all that's true. But God can make us able to dwell in the presence of our enemies with healing, with an overflowing cup. And... David, I mean, I'm telling you, there's a lot here. There's a lot more there than you thought, isn't there? I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer when I woke up this morning. And uh, Jesus tells us how we should pray. And a lot of times we pray at tables. And I was like, okay, let's look at the Lord's Prayer just for a quick second. And then I'll, I'll close. But just for a quick second, the Lord's Prayer as a table prayer. As what we need to ask of God in order to be seated at a table, what do we need to ask? We need to say, our Father in heaven, you be honored here at this table. In my marriage, in my family, in these relationships, you be here with me and you be honored in these relationships. Your name be honored as holy. We have to pray like Jesus. Your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven your will advance here, not mine. And we have to say to the Lord, give us today our daily bread because we come and we're hungry and, and we're depleted and we don't have the strength. And, and we need his bread daily in order to enable us to do what has to be done at that table. 
Forgive us our debts as we've often forgiven our debtors. That's our headspace. You know, I need the same grace to sit at this table that somebody else does. And I might think I deserve to sit at this table, and this is my table, you know. And these people have wronged me, and they don't deserve it. But no, none of us deserve to be at the table. But we need a different headspace. We need to realize that the same grace that allowed us to sit there allows somebody else to also be there, no matter how much has happened. And we need to pray not to be led into temptation because at that table we can be filled with envy and, and rivalries and every fleshly carnal thing. But we have to pray, don't bring me into temptation, but deliver me from the devil. I don't need to become the devil at this table. We need to conquer the devil at this table. <laughs> if you forgive others the offenses, your father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive, your father will not forgive our offenses. Ultimately, this table is preparation for the banquet table of the Lamb of God, that we'll be sitting in the presence of the Lamb of God who died for us to forgive us. And these tables are just preparation for that table. And if we can't swallow our sin and other people's sin and accept grace, now, how are we going to do that for eternity? God's preparing us to sit in the presence of our enemies, but to do so in a healing, reconciling way, but also uh, a life-giving way gracious way. So let's pray. Dear Father, we pray just now that you would enable us to do by your spirit what we've not been able to do in our flesh and our carnality. We pray that you can take these words of David and inspire us and encourage us. And like he sat at the presence of his enemies, like Jesus did with Judas, uh, help us, Father, to see your purpose, to trust you, to have courage, to have patience as you work. We pray In Jesus' name, amen.